Hi everyone, this is Divya for the In Common podcast. In this episode, I'm really thrilled to introduce our guest, Dr. Johan Aldekop. Johan is in the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. He conducts interdisciplinary research and uses large-scale publicly available data sets to understand trade-offs and synergies between conservation and development outcomes. In this conversation, we primarily focused on Johan's work on the impact evaluation of Zero Hunger program in Brazil and his parallel research exploring the links between forests and livelihoods in the global south. For both these projects, Johan conducted large-scale research and worked with big data sets. As we discussed these projects, it was really interesting to learn what working on a large scale with big data sets looks like, including its advantages and also some of the key limitations. Johan shared that in his research on the impact evaluation of the Zero Hunger Program, a program that was implemented to meet sustainable development goal of reducing hunger in Brazil, he found that in addition to addressing hunger, the program also improves households' access to nutrition and address the supply chain issues of agricultural production. Johan emphasized that it is important to evaluate and understand the multidimensional aspects of social protection programs so they can be implemented to their fullest potential and yield maximum benefits. For his research on exploring forest livelihood linkages in the Global South, Johan's research showed that forest management and restoration programs that prioritized community rights are more likely to reduce deforestation and poverty and eventually align with the global goals of climate mitigation, environmental justice, and sustainable development. Overall, in addition to learning about Johan's research, his vision, and the innovative approaches that he uses to address some of the critical issues, I was really inspired by the honesty and utmost humility with which Johan shared his life and research trajectories, the way he manages to take all of his challenges in his stride, and how he always finds a way to attribute the success and the breakthroughs in his research to all the wonderful people that surround and support him. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Johan and learned a great deal. I hope you do too. Hi, Johan. A very warm welcome and thank you for being our guest. I'm really excited and looking forward to our conversation. So thanks for joining us. Johan, I've been following your work and your scholarship on forest livelihood linkages and the multiple dimensions of sustainable development outcomes. And I'm really excited to engage with you about that. But before I do that, I would love to hear a bit about you, about your background. What were some of the professional and the personal life events and experiences that motivated and inspired you to pursue the kind of scholarship that you're pursuing and advancing? Well, thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me. It's a, it's a great pleasure and, and great honor to be here and to be able to, to share some of my ideas and some of my research uh, with you. Um, so where to start? So I, I guess, so I studied biology uh, as, a, as an undergrad. So I'm a biologist by training. And I think that kind of move towards biology and the natural sciences was, um, I guess, largely due to my um, kind of family history and, and background. So I, I grew up in, in, in South America until, in, until I was in my late teens. Um, and I spent much of that, the summers traveling with my dad a lot in, 
going camping and visiting quite remote areas in in the southern part of of Argentina and Chile. And so that was kind of, I think, a a kind of drive towards natural sciences. And then um, after finishing biology, I guess I took a little bit of a winding road. So I had, uh, I guess, did a master's in ecology uh, and evolution, thinking that I would be, you know, going more towards the animal behavior side of things and then had a failed PhD attempt. Uh, which I think gave me a little bit of time to kind of gather my thoughts and think about, well, what, what is it that I want to do? And I was really fortunate that I had uh, a really good professor and mentor in, in Richard Preziosi, who had taught me through, throughout my undergrad, um, who invited me to, to come to Ecuador on one of the field courses. And that was, I think, a very changing uh, kind of event for me because um, I was kind of immersed in in Amazon region of Ecuador, which is stunning, absolutely beautiful and diverse, but also quite a, a I would say a complicated region in terms of all of the demands that are placed on land, and um, and that then kind of I guess brought me back to to academia. And then I, I did my PhD then with Richard, focusing very much on indigenous land management and and conservation. Uh, and that was the first time that I broached the two subjects together. Like I said, I, I went to Ecuador uh, on on this field course, uh, and I I was struck. I mean, I you know I had come from uh, I guess straight biology and had this idea that you know conservation was mainly a natural sciences mm-hmm. approach so that natural sciences would have all of the answers to environmental issues and of course that's in hindsight I, th- I think that's that's incorrect and these environments that we think are pristine or worth conserving are human landscapes as much as they are natural landscapes and so we really need to kind of understand how these things interact um, and I, you know, in preparation of trying to think about how to come up with a research proposal, I came across the work of Eleanor Ostrom, of course, on, on commons views, and, uh, and that changed my perspective around the way in which we think about communities, the way in which we think about agency, the way in which we think about um, environmental justice issues and rights. Um, and that was very much a, a kind of turning point for me in terms of how to think about conservation issues as, as much more of a human issue than a, a natural natural resources issue. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. I really appreciate, Johan, you sharing a, that failed PhD attempt. And I can imagine a, how a lot of academics would probably like shy away from sharing their failed attempt but then uh, it's just like really nice how it was a moment for you to regroup and rethink your life choices and it gave you an opportunity to shift some gears in a way that that you felt you know eventually like you know what you ended up doing you felt more connected and more perhaps suitable for for your interests. I'm aware that, you know, you have been working on extending 
some of the these ideas that you just talked about, the role of communities, the role of justice and other aspects that you just highlighted. So how and in what ways did your doctoral work or doctoral experience helped you in moving forward in pursuing the kind of research that you're pursuing right now? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time doing field work in, in relatively remote regions. And I was struck, I guess, by the kind of decisions that households in these regions had to do. And oftentimes mm -hmm. they were very hard decisions that were driven um, by economic necessity in many instances. And so I was very interested in this idea of, of trade-offs uh, and the way in which households can or cannot make decisions about essentially the resources that they're managing, mm -hmm. whether those are officially legally given to them or not. And so that very much informed the way in which I thought about kind of coupling social economic well-being rights to environmental conservation issues. And so that it was, you know, it was it was baptism by fire and, and kind of being exposed to to some hard decisions that that households needed to make on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And you know what, uh, the thing that really struck me, which is something that keeps coming up in a lot of our conversation is that um, a lot of the academics who are uh, working in the context of community-based, you know, natural resource management or development. A lot of us have natural science backgrounds. So just like you, I also have this undergraduate degree in botany. And then my master's was also like, you know, pure natural science. But it was like, you know, eventually for my PhD, I was pursuing more of an interdisciplinary program or research. So I'm, I'm really, and, and I'm aware that when you do that, there are times when you wish you'd done your undergraduate degree in, in anthropology or sociology. <laughs> so I'm wondering like, but then at the same time, I'm also aware that how that training, that natural science training also, you know, helps us in, in understanding the context in which we are working, like the, the natural environment, the, the forest composition, their structure and things like that. But, but I, I want to hear about your experience, the fact that you have this natural science background, and then eventually you moved on to work on more uh, on community-based conservation and forest management, and also understanding these, these everyday sort of like, you know, experiences and challenges of the household level what were the kind of challenges you were facing in pursuing some of those the, the social perspective of your research and and what did you do to overcome those challenges well um well in hindsight i also feel like i should have done a, a different degree <laughs> and i sometimes think oh i should do a second phd in economics that will solve you know some of my issues um but i think uh, you know i think having a disciplinary home, um, I think certainly mm -hmm. lends you a perspective. And I think, you know, that's perhaps not not a bad thing because it, it allows you to, to come to the table with a set of expertise and uh, views um, that, that you can share with people and, and that you're also happy to be challenged, right? Um, and the amount of times that I've been uh you know told that the way that i was thinking you know was 
was perhaps unspecific or didn't include certain aspects, um, you know, was was really um, kind of happened often and, and still happens, right? And I think I think that's I think that's part of mm. interdisciplinarity. Um, and I, and I guess we do the same, right? I I, I guess um, I'm grateful for the, the the patience and time that other people have in being willing to share their expertise mm. with me and and allow me to to kind of try and scramble as much as I can to to catch up. Mm-hmm. And I think those who are, you know, I think we talk a lot about interdisciplinarity. I don't necessarily think we've come to a good definition of, of what it is. I think I think ultimately it's about questions and the questions that we're we're interested in in answering and then trying to find the best tools, whether they be qualitative uh, or quantitative, in order to answer them, right? And so different different questions will have different approaches and I think that's that's fine and that's you know we should be guided by the question rather than than the discipline if that makes sense I mean I cannot agree with you more on that Johan that the questions that we are pursuing they they are real world questions I mean um, and there's no way that one discipline can do justice in one in understanding those questions and those those settings and also like figuring out solutions and and this is really nice how you reflect on one the value of interdisciplinarity and also the value of thinking outside of the disciplines when it comes to thinking about these uh, real world problems that you're working on but i want to go back to how in your narrative that you just shared that how there were so many people who challenged you who were so patient with you and helped you in catching up? Who were these people? Were they like, you know, your, your PhD advisor or mentors or collaborators? Who were all these people, <laughs> wonderful people? So uh, so the list, uh, the list is long and I think the list is, is, is growing as well. Uh, um, I, I, there's some key people uh, that, that um, that stand out. So um, my second uh, my second super PhD supervisor was was Tony Bevington, mm-hmm. um, who at that time was was based at the University of Manchester, and he again um, was very uh, kind of instrumental in my thinking and kind of challenged me to really kind of strip things down and. I mean, I remember coming mm. up with him, uh, sorry, co- coming coming to him with, with a set of questions and, and proposing, he was saying, well, what's your research question? Just just kind of narrow down, what is it? And um, so I also had the chance to, to, to spend some time in Michigan uh, working with uh, Arun Agrawal. And again, uh, the idea of trying to simplify things, think, clearly and i was just also struck by uh their ability to kind of portray extremely complex concepts into into very well i wouldn't say simple but very understandable language that helped to unify different approaches so it was very much about distilling things 
into into particular issues. Um, and I, mm. you know, and again, I, I I continue to 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 benefit greatly from from other people whose whose clarity of thought is I find extremely inspiring. Um, I think that's that for me is really has just been a huge wealth of yeah. of information and inspiration. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, I have been thinking a lot about teaching because I've just moved back into like a full-time teaching position. Things I've realized is uh, that how important as a teacher it is for us to to really like make these complex situations or questions or the scenarios to extremely like you know, understandable. And that that does not mean that, you know, we are watering it down or dumbing it down, but then we are articulating in a very understandable and more clear way. And I see the value of that in the, as a scholar, as a researcher, the, the value of that in the way we look at the real world problems, the problems that we are working on, the research questions that we develop, and then the way we write about you know, our observations in the research articles and you know, the way we present them. So yeah, whatever you said, it resonated with me a lot. So um, with that, Johan, I would like to move forward and engage with you some of the research, the current research that you've been doing. And uh, so I was reading your paper wherein you looked at the social protection program in Brazil. And what I found really fascinating about that research is that it was supposed to be the zero hunger program. So at the outset, one would imagine that how this program would address the hunger problem in Brazil. But then in your paper, it was really enlightening to see or read that these hunger programs are not one-dimensional and they can have a multi-dimensional impact or implications. So I would like to hear more about one, how did this project come about and how you got involved in it and what was your experience like? So um, so I started working on, um, I guess, social protection or or zero hunger more specifically um out of my phd when i when i did my my first postdoc mm. um and started uh working with um uh jahi chapelle who's now starting a new position at, at msu who who did his phd in michigan as well and had kind of started working on 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 zero hunger as a as a as a kind of uh, model to try and address food security issues. And so I spent some time um, as part of that first postdoc in Brazil, um, working with, with colleagues at the Federal University of Minas Gerais to try and understand how one particular modality of this program um, affected uh, mm -hmm. decision making in, in kind of small scale farmers. So the Zero Hunger program is um, kind of was was developed as a kind of flagship strategy to address uh hunger in brazil kind of brought in by lula in in, in the early 2000s but it was kind of a, a very broad multi-structural uh program that addressed kind of food security or hunger from multiple perspectives both from a kind of household household's ability to actually uh gain access to, to to nutritious food on the one hand but also thinking about the supply side in terms of agricultural production and trying to link those two um and so and so i, I started working um 
on that and, and kind of, you know, through the field work that, that I was doing um, with, with partners that I was kind of, that the decision that farmers made was kind of influenced by, the, by perhaps, in, perhaps in relation to, to, to what other resources and assistance they were having. Right. So we were looking at this one specific aspect of the program, which uh, which was the kind of market based intervention. Um, and we were kind of rapidly finding out that, that, that farmers had access to multiple different programs that were perhaps also part of this larger Formizero program. Mm -hmm. um, and I at the time, um, so after my my that first postdoc, I, I moved to, to, to Michigan and started working with, um, with Kate Sims, uh, mm. who's at Amherst and who is, again, an extremely influential figure in, 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 in my career. Um, she's an economist and, and uh, kind of has been kind of at, really at the forefront, I think, of, of kind of impact evaluation. And at that time in Michigan, I had started working at scale. So I had I, I was interested in trying to scale up um, some of the questions that um, we'd been answering uh, or, or trying to answer looking at kind of community-based conservation, but at scale. And so suddenly, you know, this idea of, of being able to work with national level data and census data and kind of large remote sensing data, national scales, had kind of opened up. And so the question that we were trying to answer in relation to um, the social protection programs was kind of, I guess, happening at the same time that I was working in, in Nepal around community forest conservation, but at large scale. So these two projects kind of ha started working in parallel. And one of the things that I think was really quite um, kind of striking to me is that, you know, when we, when we think about um, a lot of the work that has happened around the evaluation of programs that has tended to focus on one outcome or on one specific intervention. So one intervention, which might've been community forest management, protected areas, social protection, whatever the, the mechanism of change is, but then the intended outcome, whether that would be reductions in deforestation or reductions in poverty, or um, you know, improvements in agricultural production systems without necessarily considering that in many instances, programs might have multiple goals that are perhaps not often evaluated concurrently or simultaneously, or that they would have secondary effects, right? Mm -hmm. uh, unintended consequences, whether those are positive or, or negative. And so that's when we, you know, the, the fact that we were able to combine these data at scale in Brazil allowed us to suddenly answer these questions. Well, how do these kind of small scale farmers who are making use of uh, multiple programs of assistance, how does that influence what they do in terms of their agricultural production systems? What impact does that have on their own household level social and economic well-being and what are the environmental consequences of, of these changes in, in agricultural production. Um, and, and that's when we started working, you know, at scale. And I guess that's 
continues to be the kinds of things that I'm that I'm interested in. It's so fascinating. It's so fascinating, Johan, you know, what you just explained. And it seems like, you know, all of your ideas have had quite a journey through your postdoc, through your interaction <laughs> with people, and eventually inspiring you to scale up your observations and what you were finding. And what you just explained made me think about the ways in which other social protection programs that can also be looked at. So in one of my research, I'm looking at the livelihood program in India and Nepal. And uh, it's again, like very important social protection program. And when I was reading your paper, it, it forced me to think about what could be other benefits of the program. And you know, besides providing this livelihood security, uh, what perhaps could be, you know, other benefits of this program. So with that, I, I'm really interested in hearing about what this Zero Hunger Program, clearly it's supposed to address the sustainable development goal of you know, reducing hunger. But then, as you just explained, it's, it's not only limited to addressing the hunger problem, it goes beyond that. So I would love to hear more about what were those other multidimensional aspects of the program that you were able to capture or explain through your research. Yeah, so um, so it's interesting that you're mentioning um, kind of other other social protection programs. And I think I think this is an aspect that is kind of related to environmental issues that perhaps we're not considering sufficiently. And I know that I'm not I'm not the only person that thinks that. Um, I think I think it comes down partly on our ability to develop theories about the ways in which we can foresee social protection programs in, in mm. whatever configuration they exist to address um, livelihood issues and to kind of perhaps spill over onto, onto in, in environmental issues. Um, and to that extent, our ability to link that back to, to, to data. And I think that's a particular challenge because when we look at household surveys, they're not necessarily designed to address environmental issues. Um, and so there's yeah. a kind of, there's a challenge in being able to stitch the data together in a way that allows us to answer or test the hypothesis about the way in which these things are linked together. In Brazil, I think we got very lucky because we were able to stitch all of these data together at the level of, of individual municipalities. So this was work that um, hmm. one of my colleagues who, who did her PhD with me, Cecilia Dingeland, was able to do really effectively and to then kind of think about, well, we've got a zero hunger program, which um, addresses both demand issues of, of accessing food uh, and the mechanisms through which it does that on the one hand, and then supporting agricultural production. So we were able to link that to household surveys that address, you know, nutrition, uh, surveys that address agricultural production, and then being able to link that to remote sensing. And one of the things that was very interesting from, from that work is that, you know, you generate this kind of dashboard where things don't necessarily all move in the same direction as mm -hmm. you expect them to, and where you might see potential trade-offs occurring across 
environmental and social issues. And I think importantly, one of the benefits of working at scale is that, that you're then able to essentially see where in space these things either coincide or don't, right? So you're then able to kind of identify, well, if we've managed to reduce poverty, reduce you know, child malnutrition, and improve agricultural production without increasing deforestation, you know, why is it that this has happened in this place, but not in others, right? So it's almost trying to use these data sets as a way to better understand, you know, what has worked where, and then to do, then zoom in and ask, well, why, right? Um, and I think that's, that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about doing the work in Brazil and, uh, and which, you know, I think is again, mm -hmm. a research frontier that I, I, I don't think we've explored enough or sufficiently. I love this approach of doing more like a larger scale work and understanding like what is working where and what is not working, uh, and then identifying those patches and then zooming in. Uh, so it's like, you know, you, you conduct a larger scale study and then you know, move on to conduct specific, like, you know, local level and context specific work. And I can imagine like, you know, the benefits of that or the value of that, because I feel that when you do that, you go into that particular context that you are eventually going to work in with a more broader understanding and also like, you know, uh, you're aware of the trends and, and you can always compare and contrast. So this is working here and something else is not working somewhere else. Uh, so I can you know, clearly imagine the value of that. And this is something that I never thought about, to be honest, Johan. You know, I, I'd always thought about that you can only upscale uh, the, the lessons or your research once you've done the local level work. But what I'm get, what I'm understanding the way you describe your research, it's, it's like flipped. You flip the approach wherein you've gathered these national level census and national level data, and also there's remote sensing that is involved, and uh, and then try to understand the trends and use that as a way to identify the areas that need more focused research. Yeah, I hadn't, I, hadn't, I had never thought about it that way, but I think you put it much better than I have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and so the, the related question that I have is, I mean, clearly we see the advantage of doing this, you know, larger level work. In your opinion or in your view, Johan, what do you think have been some of the, the drawbacks of doing national level work? Uh yeah, I mean, I think there, there's, there's a lot of challenges and there's a, there's a lot of, of drawbacks uh, as well, uh, kind of limitations mm -hmm. to, to what we can say with, with specific certainty. I think to a large extent, we're kind of at the mercy of, of the data and what's been collected and not collected. There are situations that we're finding where it's, you might not be able to measure what you would like to measure or you're not necessarily able to get a sufficient kind of geographical spread because the surveys for example that have been devised are 
you know, nationally representative, but not subnationally representative. And so there's kind of bias in the data. The more you kind of scale onto, mm-hmm. you know, the higher the, the spatial resolution, the, the greater the bias is. And I think those are those are issues that that I'm grappling with, and that colleagues that uh, that um, I'm also working with are, are are also grappling with. So that that becomes uh, an issue. There are ways around it uh, in terms of there's a, a lot of kind of clever statistical ways of, mm-hmm. of getting around it, but uh, there's always trade-offs, and I think we end up a little bit like when you do qualitative research that you end up conducting multiple multiple interviews and multiple statistical analyses in slightly different ways to try and triangulate your results um, and to make sure that the patterns that you're seeing are not just because it's not it's not an artifact of the data or 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 the construction of your of your analysis i i continue to learn i guess as we go along and and face these challenges because every data set is unique in that sense right um, yeah, absolutely. It's nice that you that you bring up qualitative research and qualitative data because I'm primarily a qualitative researcher and these questions that I explore are through interviews and multiple interviews. And then when I was reading your work, you know, I was struck that uh, how you were exploring the kind of questions that I'm interested in exploring with quantitative data. So, I mean, the good thing about quantitative data is that it makes things more tangible versus the qualitative data it it's hard to put number at certain things so but then quantitative data addresses that gap wherein it comes up with these specific numbers but at the same time i can imagine that there are challenges associated with that dealing with these numbers and and addressing these questions about development sustainable development and, and you know community role in the form of like you know these numbers and i know this is a vague question but I want to hear that, do you, do you come across any roadblocks when you're working with these massive data? Uh, absolutely, uh, all the time. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I th- you know, I think, I think, I mean, I, I think these data sets allow us to understand patterns. Um, I think, perhaps one of the reasons why people are so, um, let's say, focused on in, in impact evaluation around causality is because it's very difficult to just with numbers um, be able to say with any real confidence the direction of the effect is from A to B. And I think okay. there, qualitative research provides a much clearer and I think cleaner way of trying to understand causal relationships mm. um, than quantitative yeah. data does. But it's difficult to to do that at scale. And so I think, you know, trying to link these two approaches in terms of you know, hypothesis generation and hypothesis testing is a really kind of underused way of thinking. You know, again, this goes back to this idea of, well, we tend to think of ourselves as either qualitative researchers or quantitative researchers, and we don't, you know, we don't share methods because, 
you know, in, they're inherently different or we think of them as, as, as not good enough to answer the questions that we're interested in. But again, I think this goes back to, well, what are the questions that we're interested in and what are the, how can we mm -hmm. best answer them? I think one of the, you know, related to kind of some of the things that I was saying beforehand, I think one of the, the key limitations around, you know, these big data sets is that there are very there are things that are very difficult to quantify, right? How do yeah. you quantify justice? I mean, I think that right. you know how do you, how do you define it? How do you then measure it? Should you measure right. it? Can you measure it? Does it then lose meaning if you start measuring it in a way that is uniform because it's a very subjective issue? And those are questions that I don't have answers to. I'm not sure. Perhaps we will never have answers. Um, but I think it increases this necessity to really kind of speak to different researchers that are addressing social and environmental issues from different perspectives, because mm -hmm. we gain from that, right? We gain from, from all of these interactions. I've certainly gained from, from, from being told, no, you, you can't measure that. Why would you want to measure it? That's not the way to look at things. And, and mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, I've, I've gained great understanding from that, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, moving forward, I'm kind of getting a sense that you are working towards also incorporating qualitative data in your work. Is that true? I certainly started working a lot more kind of mixed methods, uh, certainly at the, at the, in, during my PhD and my first postdoc. And I'm working on some mm -hmm. kind of critical issues um, as well now with people that are much better at doing critical kind of social science than I am. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like I'm just, I'm just <laughs> taking it all in. Mm -hmm. um, I think we've not yet found a good way of, I have not found a good way to be able to do that. And I think from a kind of funding perspective, it becomes very difficult because when mm -hmm. you, I think when you come up to a panel and they say, well, you're going to combine yeah. big data sets with kind of very local case-based qualitative analysis there's the question of how will you combine them and then it goes to different reviewers and i think it comes it, it is a challenge and trying to find a space to be able to do that effectively is uh, is something that i continue to, to find difficult so yeah. I, yeah i'm not quite sure that that's a good enough answer to that question that is a realistic challenge and uh yeah, I think uh, I, I cannot even imagine what it might take to address that, you know, to upscale the qualitative work to match the quantitative data, the national level quantitative data that you have. So I think it is, a, it is definitely a, a legitimate challenge. But with that, Johan, I want to move on to talk about, you know, this other parallel scholarship, which I'm just like so excited to discuss and chat with you about, uh, you know, the, the scholarship on forest livelihood linkages and how in a lot of your work, you're talking about uh, forests can be a way of eradicating or addressing the poverty issue, especially in, in a lot of like, you know, global South countries. So I, I want to start out by asking the question of what was the intellectual stimulus or um, impetus for this work? 
So that I, th I, th I think came from very much from the work that I did in my, in my PhD. Uh, and then from the time that it, I, I spent in, in Michigan, um, where I was part of Arun's broader research group that kind of focused very specifically around, around these issues. And one of the things that, that struck me was that whenever we had looked at kind of commons research, it was, uh, it was difficult to kind of identify again, what had worked in what instances and where, and how, you know, it kind of, I was, I, I was struck and even kind of all of the, the IFRI work was very much based around collections of case studies. So again, this issue of, of, of scaling that up, but it, it goes, it goes back to this idea of, of, of really trying to address social and environmental issues in a, in a kind of, within a kind of rights-based framework um, that I found, you know, very important and kind of the evidence suggested that this might be not only a, a, the right thing to do because of justice issues, but also from an environmentally and socially um, angle as well. Yes, yes. And then, you know, in one of your parallel works or the, the articles that I was reading about the work that you've done in Nepal, one of the, the lessons or uh, one of the findings that I was able to gather from that research was that uh, community forest management can also be a way to achieve sustainable forest use and reduce rural poverty. And um, I, I was hoping if you can elaborate on that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think these things. So the issues of you know rights, forests, livelihoods. I think they're being, I guess, put under increased pressure because of new conservation and restoration agendas, right? So, um, so how how can we secure carbon? How can we make sure that people have rights? to land and resources to sustain their livelihoods how do we make sure that we reduce poverty which continues to be kind of elusive goal so how do we address these these different issues simultaneously right through what kinds of programs and i think um community-based conservation and community forests um have been very much been promoted you know since the 1980s much through the work that Eleanor Ostrom and Arun Agrawal and, and others have done around demonstrating that, you know, given the right conditions, community forests are able to, to do that to a certain degree. But one of the things that struck me was also that you end up with these um, the kind of very heterogeneous outcomes. So we, we were working on a review with one of my colleagues, um, Reem Hajar, uh, uh, Pete Newton, um, and also colleagues at C4 that, that, you know, trying to collate the evidence around community forests. And one of the things that struck, struck me was that you, you, you tend to get very heterogeneous results. Community forests seem to work in some instances, but not in others. But there didn't seem to be an evaluation of an entire program, right? So sure, you know, depending on where you go, some might be more successful than others, but on average, have they worked or not, right? So if we're trying to develop a program or we're promoting a program, 
um, does it work? Um, and that had not been done before. Um, and so I think one of the, the things that we were very lucky to do was to be able to do that in Nepal where the data was available and where we, where we were able to, to find that, you know, if you have a kind of rights-based approach, you tend to see a reduction in deforestation and a reduction in poverty. And through a follow-up review, we, we also found that in the literature that cases that, you know, had, had rights tended to, to do better. Um, yeah. So I think, I think it's important to be able to say whether programs work or not, whether these approaches that we're thinking or considering or not are important. And that takes me back to one point that um, I saw in a, in a presentation relatively recently by Paul Ferraro, who's, um, who's done a lot of the kind of impact evaluation work, was that he said we have a moral obligation to, to understand whether programs work or not. Um, because, you know, essentially these programs are affecting people's livelihoods. They're, you know, addressing or trying to address environmental issues in areas that are highly threatened, where you have endangered species. So we can't just just do and, and hope for the best. We have to have a, an approach that, that really does no harm at, at the very least. Um, and so that's, I think, again, one of the, one of the reasons why I think focusing on these rights-based approaches, well, do they lead to rights? Have they reduced poverty? Have they reduced deforestation? Trying to think about this in a kind of systematic way is very important. Yeah, yeah. So for, uh, just for our listeners, uh, you know, out there who are from like, you know, various backgrounds and various disciplines, uh, can you share a little bit about uh, maybe like some of the examples of the program in the forestry context that you're talking about? So um, in terms of community-based conservation programs, um, well, so I, I mean, I think, you know, I think these come in, in different shapes and sizes across the world. Um, so you have some programs like the Community Forest Management Program in Nepal, which provides uh, quite a lot of uh, rights to local communities um, in contrast to some others uh, in other countries where there's only a partial devolution of rights uh, and communities don't necessarily have as much say as they do in other places. Um, and I think, you know, at least from from my reading of the literature, because I don't think there's been any systematic analyses of, of some of these more uh, kind of perhaps more restrictive programs is that we don't know um, uh, whether they work or not. But it, from, from my end, if you're not providing rights, then there's one of the dimensions that is clearly missing in these programs. So you might be failing on at least one of the dimensions you know, of kind of, which is, I think, essential to, to, to our definitions of sustainability. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes complete sense. And the other um, a thought that I wanted to share as I was hearing your narrative about the work that you're doing in the community forestry sector is, you know, when we think about decentralized forest management, I always, it always gives me the impression that, that we're putting a lot of 
uh, responsibility onto the community. And with the responsibility comes the expectation that, you know, the communities, yes, now we've declared that, you know, the communities are the best actors to take care of the forests and they're the best guardians of the forest and they have the best knowledge of the forests. So they are, they are well suited to, to be the decision makers about the forest. But then the reality is that a lot of these communities are changing in the sense like the aspirations are changing, their lifestyles are changing. They dream about, especially in the contexts where I'm working, these communities, they dream about uh, sending their kids to you know, good schools and have them get good education and live in the cities and have like nice houses and comfortable lifestyle. And I completely agree to that. There's, there's nothing wrong with having those kind of like, you know, aspirations. But then uh, when I put both these things together, like, you know, uh, one scenario wherein we are putting this a lot of responsibility onto the community when we're thinking about community-based forest management, and then this scenario, this parallel scenario where the aspirations and the lifestyles of the people are changing. I'm always left wondering about how would both these scenarios be compatible? I know this is a broad question uh, and might be like a wig, but, but I, I wonder if, if that resonates with, you know, some of your observations. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's so much to unpack there, right? There's questions around agency and the ability to make decisions that are, you know, for you and your household um, and, we're seeing big changes in the way in which rural landscapes are essentially in many instances being depopulated, right? Because you've got huge amounts of, of rural to urban migration. And that again, changes the nature of, of communities and community conservation and institutions. And I think it's a really, it's a really difficult kind of set of questions. I think the, the onus, I think is on us, A, to acknowledge that there is no one size fits all, right? That what might work during one period is not necessarily going to work in 10 years time. And so we need to kind of shift what we do and how we conserve uh, and, and help support people's livelihoods. And I think that kind of, I think places on a, a responsibility on us because I think ultimately we, the way in which at least I think I add value to well, my contribution to society, you know, is to better understand it and better understand these issues. And so the kind of part of, of that responsibility falls on us to try and understand and like you say, highlight that this is not a simple issue, right? And I think, uh, yeah, and I think these things they're complicated and we need to address them or we need to better understand them so that we can address them. I, I really like the point that you make about that, you know, the, the longevity of the research is not like forever. It has to be updated as the time is changing. I think that was a really interesting point. But I want to ask you, Johan, like, you know, again, the work that you're doing is so relevant, so interesting. I'm definitely confident that people like me, like researchers like me who are pursuing the similar kind of questions, we benefit a lot from, you know, your scholarship. But I'm wondering, like, um, in addition to writing 
peer-reviewed articles. Are there other ways that you communicate your research findings? I think coming out of the academic institutions is really hard for several reasons. I think partly because there are very many pressures on academic lives, right? We have to we have to teach and we're expected to, to teach at a very high level. And uh, I think conducting research is also, it's a long game, right? It's not, there's never quick answers. And I think we're very good at kind of saying, oh, that's a very good question. Let me go back and, you know, I'll, I'll look at this in, in, in three years time, I'll, I'll give you an answer <laughs> and a lot of more questions. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think we need to, to become better at trying to integrate you know, working with working with with key stakeholders and actors that are act- actively interested in implementing these uh, these findings, or 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 interested in in developing a research agenda uh, that is kind of mutually beneficial uh, and important. But I think that is, I think these, or at least from my experience of at least starting to do some of that is that it's based very much on individual relationships, right? You're not, and those relationships take time to build. And you also need to, to be in in a, develop a space where, where you're able to meet people who are perhaps working in a different sector than you that is related, but, but very much more around implementation. I found that relatively difficult. And I should say also that in many instances, at least in my experience of perhaps doing some work with policymakers has been that the turnaround, the expectation of turnaround is much, much higher. So again, navigating that and managing kind of expectations, both from the, from the researcher's perspective, as well as from different stakeholders' perspective is, is something that is, I think, challenging and something that I'm still very much in, in the learning process. Oh, that makes sense um, that communicating or even establishing connections and networks with the state actors and other stakeholders, it's a different ball game altogether and it requires a different set of energies and even skill set, I, I could imagine, despite like all the challenges, you've been figuring a way to make that happen amidst all the other responsibilities that you have. But then, uh, Johanna, one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you, given that, you know, we've had this really interesting discussion about the multiple research projects and the ideas that you're pursuing, where are you hoping to go with, with it in the sense that what is the vision do you have for your research moving forward? Do you have some goals in mind that you want to pursue? Yeah, so we're um, we're just at the start of a, of a new project uh, that is going to be looking at drivers of reforestation and their environmental and social impacts. Um, so that's, I'm very excited about that. Um, that's going to be a, a new five-year program of research that's going to be starting in, in, in January. And you know, I think I've, I've been very much on, or I've been very much an empiricist, right? I've kind of, I've, I've borrowed theories that other people have developed um, and then tried to test them. And I think one of the things that I would like to do is to perhaps do some more theoretical work um, where the kind of empirical work that I've been doing and that we'll do as part of this new uh, um, 
project on sustainable forest transitions kind of leads to new theory development. It's so fascinating. Uh, do you know where the sites of, of this project that you just talked about will be? Yeah, so we've, um, we're going to continue to be working in Nepal and Brazil, and we're going to start working in Mexico uh, and, and India. Um, and perhaps try and expand that as well uh, to, to a few more countries. Um, so I think one of the things that, that is perhaps really, I guess, missing in some of the forests livelihoods research, certainly within the kind of impact evaluation work, I think is a little bit more uh, comparative research uh, across countries. Um, so, you know, do social protection programs that are similar in the way in which they are constructed, do they lead to similar outcomes? If you think about, you know, migration is, is a kind of key social change in rural landscapes, does it lead to similar outcomes in places that, you know, are social, economically and politically different, but have similar migration patterns? And that's, yeah, that's one of the mm -hmm. things that I'm, that I'm particularly excited about is to be able to do some comparative mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful, Johan, to you for sharing all these really interesting insights about your work. I know we are almost going to hit the end of the road here, but I, I also want to take this opportunity to ask you if, you know, we missed discussing anything that you wanted to share uh, with me and with the audience. Um. I, I can't think of anything. I think this has been such a, a, a nice conversation and it's, ra it's rare that I get to talk about my work in, in such a, a kind of detailed manner. So I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity and, uh, and hope to you know, perhaps discuss some of your work as well, which is, uh, which is related and perhaps what's missing is that we didn't get to discuss your work as well. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much for, for your time. Absolutely. No, I would be thrilled to discuss my work with you because I definitely see a lot of parallels uh, between what your even just your ideas and motivations and and the and thinking that undergirds your work. I mean, I, I see there, there are a lot of parallels in that. I would love to share my work with you also sometime. But but again, thank you so much, Johan. I know that you're super swamped and you're extremely busy. So I'm just like so thankful to you for sparing the time and and engaging with me and being so patient and also honest in addressing the questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can find more episodes as well as our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Studies of the Common. Thanks again for joining us. Take care.